during guided meditation, I mentioned the middle way. It's a Buddhist doctrine or a Buddhist principle. Another way of saying it is to be free from extremes. I think freedom from extremes is a much more accurate way of saying it for a few reasons. It's more accurate in the experience of it. It's more accurate as regards the insight that breaks down the barriers uh, that make experience feel distant. And it's also accurate in regards to the process, the unbinding process that reveals this truth that's pointed to by the terminology, middle way, or to be free from extremes. The Heart Sutra has a beautiful way of saying it, freed from delusive hindrance. So what is an extreme what does it mean to be bound by an extreme or fixated in an extreme, an extreme position, an extreme view, even an extreme experience? Well, we can just start from the beginning and say that the first extreme we encounter or the first extreme we dispel is the extreme of thought identification and thought identification is so um, ingeniously sneaky that we don't even know it's there until you have some kind of disruption often sometimes it's a life tragedy sometimes it's just coming in contact with the right message such that you realize you've been kind of hypnotized by yourself. Um, we need that little that first gap before we start to recognize how um, binding the world of thought identification actually is. It's rather binding. It's almost as if we just find ourselves. Uh, some point in our young adult life or mid, even middle adult life or even late adult life, we just sort of find ourselves in this, caught up in this whole whirlwind of becoming, trying to do better, be better, trying to fit in, trying to get validation, trying to solve endless problems, trying to find the next distraction, trying to find a better distraction, trying to make ourselves feel better trying to make others see us. And there's such a momentum to all of that that we don't realize how identified we are with it. So we don't question identity because the dynamism of that feels so relevant. And it's endorsed by the mind, the thoughts, because they're very sneaky. They convince us that it's working in various ways, but we're also, um, it's also reinforced by the endorsement of 
um, the collective human paradigm in many ways through communication. Almost every communication has some degree of a, a sort of reinforcement of that separate identity uh, or a reinforcement of your role in remaining complicit in that identity for yourself and for others. And we're taught this at a very young age by our parents who bless their hearts, are doing their best, did their best. But again, um, they're sort of hypnotized as well in, in this way. And the communication styles we learn very early on often have some of this implicit um, statement of role, of role, of your role to remain complicit with certain things. certain beliefs, certain behavior patterns. So the complicity, um, we don't recognize how pervasive it is in our experience. Par partly because we're afraid to question it. You're taught not to question it. So if you don't question it, um, and you don't re and you don't investigate identity. You won't recognize your identity is complicit with something that's uh, not not even something you can actually find. Not even something that anyone actually knows they're doing. So it leads us to sometimes using different kinds of terminology. Eckhart Tolle has a very beautiful way of describing it. He describes it as pain body, almost a, a, a sort of life force. And it's very good at hiding. It's very good at remaining dormant and very opportunistic when conditions arise to become active. And when it becomes active, some level of violence is occurring, depending on how you define violence. Um, I would just say maybe some level of delusion is occurring. And that feels like suffering. So there's this sort of collective hypnosis that no one's purposely doing, but we're all sort of complicit in. So that's what I mean when I say thought identification. Um, and I wanted to break that down in the way I did to demonstrate that if you don't explore it, if you don't really look into it, it's far more binding than most people realize. In fact, you never quite realize how binding it is until you're, that, until a shift occurs of some magnitude. And you know what it is to be free from that extreme uh, to a large degree. That initial dropping away of so much struggle that you didn't even realize was there. So much weight you didn't realize you had been carrying. And the contrast between the struggling, suffering self and the um, freedom from that binding, the freedom from that fixation, very quickly, often, that 
contrast really demonstrates how fixated that actually is, how mm. how much of an extreme it is. So this is why I often will say the first stage of realization, if there can be said to be stages of realization, is just to recognize your own suffering, um, which is everything I've been talking about. If any of this resonates, which for most people here, I'm sure it does, um, as your entry point, that's where to start investigating. The beauty of this is we don't have to investigate um, the whole complicity project on its own terms. We don't have to investigate it conceptually because the whole thing actually exists in the, in the realm of uh, belief, essentially, which is conceptual, essentially. Uh, but we don't have to approach it on its own level, although we usually try it first because it's not the only game in town, luckily. It's a powerful game and it's a binding game, but it's only binding when you believe it. It's only binding when you remain just enough, just unconscious enough to it that you let it keep going, that you let yourself keep participating in it. Uh, it does have a good amount of momentum. So as we start to intuit that suffering that we're feeling, causing, uh, going into complicity with, it usually compels us to start to dig into what the mechanism is, dig into identity. There's a lot of ways to do that. Um, but as we begin that process, we often find a lot of resistance. We, we can be pretty surprised by how hard it is to, I mean, even just sit still, not giving the mind anything to chew on, not giving the mind a distraction, not getting dramatic dynamism from other people. All these things we do all the time when we just stop for a half an hour or for a day it can be quite surprising how restless we get, how uncomfortable that can be. That's the momentum. So even though breaking this spell is a very simple act, because as I said, it's not the only game in town, and it's actually a, a very small game in one sense, um, the momentum of it and our own buy-in to it keeps it going. So this is where the really good news starts is at some point we just have to become um, authentic, I guess, with ourselves, authentic or sincere about the fact that we are, we are propagating it. And when, we, when it really hits that we're, we're somehow propagating our own suffering, um, not purposely, we're not trying to torture ourselves, but it is something we're, we're adding energy to, um, then there's a huge opportunity to stop doing that. So the message is stop doing that. Just stop, cut it out. Don't do it. And sometimes it works to even hear that. Just stop. I did a really cool interview with Gargaji and she talked about this uh, when she met Papaji. 
and he told her, just stop. Don't do anything. So she said, he sat on the couch and meditated in his living room. And he said, no, 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 you're meditating. I told you to stop. Don't do anything. And she felt that. Like, whoa. Like she felt the, the heaviness of that message. What it really means to stop playing the game of you. And then find out what's really underneath the game of you. The expression of you. <clears throat> the made-up character of you the um, persona. So, yeah. The first, the first one, the first fixation, the first extreme is, in one way of speaking, the biggest one because it's the most widespread. It's the most endorsed. It's widely endorsed. This is very rare to have this kind of conversation and for it to land. I mean, this is a lot of people, you know, it's getting bigger on YouTube and all that, but it's still very rare that someone actually wants to engage this directly because it's a threat to everything you think you know and your coping mechanisms. So it's a, in that sense, it's, it is rather extreme. Um, and when that, shifts when that falls that first extreme it's such a wonderful time it's just fluidity simplicity it's just so obvious but you can't even say what it is that's so obvious so simple you don't have to push you don't have to pull you never did anything wrong you don't need to figure out how to do it right it's just a big deep release it's a release um, beyond your means. And that's really important. The release is beyond your means. It's beyond your capability. It's beyond your control. That's a really uncomfortable statement for the, the experience of the mind-identified identity because it wants, it wants to feel better too. But... What it doesn't want to hear is this message that the mechanism, the lever, is not in its control. It can't see it because it lives in a world of later and after and seeking and more. Um, the, the release is just so much closer, so much simpler. So, um, there's a very interesting challenge with talking about this, especially a shift, first shift. I can't can I can't deny that it, that it very obviously happens. Um, at the same time, to the degree that that hypnosis of thought identification is going, me talking about it as an event that can happen to you will always be misinterpreted to some degree. It just will. Because the mind goes, ooh, that's the ultimate cookie. That's the ultimate thing to chase. The thing to know about this 
is the part of us that wants it in that way is not honest. It's not. It's the kind of dishonesty of procrastination. I'll just do it later. No, you won't. You just don't want to do it now. That's all you're saying to yourself. You're just saying no to right now, which is fine, but it's not later. Um, right? That's that's the, the the hypnosis or the drug of the seeking mind is it's like you're carrying, you have a stick and a string and there's a carrot on the string and you're chasing your own carrot around, right? That's what it is. It's doing it all the time. And it does it with the belief in the future. It does it with the belief in time. But that belief in the future is not moving you to the future. You don't have control like that. All it's really doing is distancing you from the present. And it works really well. There's no actual distance from the present, but experientially it does quite feel like that. So if, um, if you're frustrated by hearing uh, that, even though I talk about an awakening, it's not an event that's going to happen in the future in the way you can think about it. And I promise you that's true. I know that's frustrating for some people to hear because they tell me. They, get, they tell me how mad it makes them on my YouTube channel and stuff. And I understand it. I totally get it. Um, at the same time, I'm... I just am inclined to come up with the 157th way to say, looks, just don't look there though. You're looking at your thoughts. That's what you're doing right now. When you, when you tell yourself, I've been at this for so long and I'm so frustrated and it just hasn't happened yet. It's like what you're talking about when you say that is not what I'm talking about. I'm telling you that's not where to look. Don't look in the seeking mind because the seeking mind will endlessly promises and never delivers. That's not my fault. It's not the fault of the message. And it's not your fault. It's just what it does. It's, it's innocent, but it's hypnotizing if you don't realize there's some other place to look. There's some other way of experiencing this moment. So that can feel like letting go of your narrative, your story. And everything it's given you and everything it's cost you. So what would it mean to let go of your narrative right now? Completely. I know the suffering that can bring to the surface to even hear that sometimes. The frustration, the anger, the rage, Confusion, disorientation, blame. I get it. Sometimes people will say, you don't understand how I'm feeling. I'm like, oh, I've been there. Trust me. It's like the, the scene in Fight Club where um, he pours the lie onto the other guy's hand and he says, you know how this feels? And Tyler Durden just holds up his hand and he's got one on his hand. He did it to himself. Um, we've been through this. And it's not even in the past that I went through this. It's right now. I can see it from both sides. 
And I know the side that feels like suffering. And I know the side that when you turn suffering around, it doesn't look like suffering anymore at all. It looks like freedom. It's the same actual thing. It's not a thing, but it's the same uh, entity, let's say. Nirvana, samsara. Suffering, release. Your suffering is the entry point. So when in this retreat, <clears throat> as things get deeper and deeper, and you start to experience different states and so forth, and your mind says, oh, let's try this, or how do I feel better, or, you know, waiting for the future when you feel just a little bit better in the next round, or you get to stand up and walk around, or eat, you know, eating, eating is the best at retreats, right? Like it's the one profound pleasure. Food tastes a thousand times better at a retreat, especially here. Um, but when, when you're going through that, your mind, that's your mind. That's not you. That's not you that's saying that, those narratives. Well, like, yeah, I can't make it to this round. I, I got to move. I can't wait till I get up and walk and go to lunch or whatever. Whatever your mind is doing. That's not you. Okay. So what I want you to do there in that moment is remember that. Those are thoughts. I want you to enter your suffering. That's it. That's the portal. Your suffering is the portal. And your mind is going to go, well, where's my suffering? I'm not sure. I kind of feel it, but I don't know. That's your mind. Go to the suffering. The suffering isn't the mind's version of suffering. The suffering is a portal. It's what brought you here. It's an entry point. And it will be presented to you this close all week long in different ways. It might look like thought storms. It might look like or feel like intense emotions. It may feel like intense, deep grief. It may feel like anger. I don't want you to feel those, actually. If you're going to feel anger, feel it here. Don't act out on it, but feel it. Maybe let your body you know, move with that experience out there somewhere. Um, but, but feel it. You know, Feel anything that comes up here. That's what we're doing here. It's, it's really a perfect environment for it. Um, but it's being presented as the resistance to the anger. It's being presented to you, the suffering, one way or another. In physical pain, you can find it very quickly and easily. It's not the pain, but it's being presented by the pain. It's not the thoughts, but it's be being presented by the thoughts. It's something like resistance. It's something like uh, very basic tendency to say no. That's the suffering I'm talking about. So if you can find it in the most simple form in your experience, that's where I want you to go. If you carry one thing through this retreat, it's an orientation. It's not something to think about either. It's a, it's a visceral orientation. But go the last place you would normally want to go. And find out you've been carrying it around with you. And the only way you're going to know how safe it is actually to go there is to realize, like, my God, I've been carrying this around. It's been here. It's been calling me in many ways. Somehow I keep dodging it. And just out of innocence, out of 
habit, that a momentum of mind and behavior and thought and belief. And if things get very quiet, very peaceful, inwardly, and it feels like there's only one, one direction to go, and it doesn't even feel like a direction, that's, that's enough. Like I said, suffering and freedom are, they're literally the same, but experientially, sometimes you'll even feel them fluctuating like very intense suffering in a sitting round, silent sitting round. Then all of a sudden freedom, suffering, freedom, suffering, freedom. So this happens in different ways, but when you feel a, a release that's very primary, there's nothing hiding in it. Um, that's fine. Let that, let that carry you. That, and that kind of sometimes turns into the one-pointed approach where something feels so obviously compelling. It's like the when you finally look the last place you want to look, when you finally actually look there, and you know it. And it's like, oh my God, it was not the monster I thought it was. There's nothing to hide from myself anymore. There's nothing hidden anymore. And it's very simple. Um... When that reveals itself, then all of a sudden you, you start to realize you, you, you are carrying it all the time, but, but you can carry it knowingly. You can carry it into the this, this sitting down, into the, into the bells, into the silence. Bell rings, stand up, you're still, you're still with it. So you're synchronizing with it in a way or continuing to just acknowledge it ongoing through the retreat. And this is a really good environment to do that with um that that becomes like a one-pointed meaning all of a sudden all the drama all the stories all the narratives are just so uninteresting but this this is really interesting i can't think about it i can't say a darn word about it i can't write in my journal about it there's no way i can talk to anyone about it and i'm i'm, I'm actually done with wanting to talk about it that's over too, because I realize that's nonsense. It's that clear and obvious right here. Um, then you'll just stay with it, because why wouldn't you? You can carry that off to sleep as you emerge from sleep in the shower. Very enjoyable. Enjoyable, not um, as an extreme, actually. It's a different kind of enjoyment. So we break. We start to break this first extreme. We start to notice this much more natural enjoyment. Maybe I could call it an enjoyment of living truth. An enjoyment of finally not making things up. Finally not lying to myself. That kind of enjoyment. It's very simple. And it's uncaused. It's uncaused. You're not doing it. You're not causing it and you know that. But it's not separate from you. It's not acting upon you from outside either. 
it's continuous, seamless, with all experience. And is there are many distorting qualities to the mind-identified world I was describing earlier. But one of the... Is there drumming in here? Oh, it's a phone. <laughs> it's okay. Um, say... Oh, um, so there are many uh, various aspects to this hypnosis, this mass hypnosis of mind identification. Um, but well, I forgot what I was going to say now. Anyway, next thing I'm going to say is something else. We'll see. We're all in this mystery together. Now, this is one thing I noticed as I was walking around getting tea between rounds. Um, I just thought to say, like, this isn't my retreat. This is your retreat. But individually, it's your retreat. It's your individual retreat. So while you are supported by this large group, um, be selfish here with your attention. Let it rest inwardly. Whether we're whether we're conditioned to be self-centered or other-oriented and generous, both of those um, are, are versions of abandoning ourself initially. Um, this kind of exploration is it requires some courage. Oh, actually, I do know what I was going to say earlier. Um, one of the components of the world of mind identification that's quite prominent um, is it's this belief that we're required in an extraordinary way, um, in an unnecessary way to spend a lot of our energy, um, to give a lot of our attention to, to the model itself, to the model of being human itself think about it, obsess about it, all of it. Um, but what that ends up doing actually is turning the arrow of our attention away from something. And again, it seems very innocent and it is in a sense, but at some point when you realize, um, how much momentum there is to that. And you realize that by trying to start to do this inner work, start starting or just stopping, it's just sitting silently with no agenda. Uh, or start to inquire, and you start to feel resistance patterns come up, uh, you realize that there's there's a lot of momentum to keep that arrow pointed in a, in a way outward, outward into thought, um, which looks like the world to us. Um, so what's not valued, strangely, is a, for the most part in society, is a thorough, um, complete, inward inward look and it's a simple act a 
So in this way, be selfish in the retreat, meaning look in that one place that some deep, deep part of you wants to look because it does. And I can't tell you how that looks because it's not a how. It's not a, um, not a picture I can paint for you. It's way too intuitive to be structured in a, in a concept or in a description, even to yourself. You will go beyond description immediately now. You simply move beyond the world of description, self-reference, narrative, and you see something more real than all of that. And it is more real. What's more real than anything you've ever thought about yourself? What's more real than your doubts? The doubts that say, I don't know how to do this. This doesn't make sense. I'm in the wrong place. I don't get it. I've tried for so long and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what is more real than those doubts? What's closer than the doubts? What's more real than the belief that I can show you something? Because that's a belief. That can be scary to hear because then we think we're on our own. Yeah. And in one way of speaking, you are. But also, I'm on my own to engage this process is also a belief. So what's reality, what's real when those beliefs fall? What's more real than those beliefs? Just take, I'm just taking your beliefs away. That's all, I mean, that's all I can do is pull the rug or show you that you actually can sort of stand on your own without beliefs. Stand in your own space without beliefs. And it doesn't matter how much doubt you have, really, because I watch a lot of people go through this, and sometimes people with tremendous amounts of doubt, it's just vaporized with the insight. The insight doesn't care about doubt or thoughts or how many thoughts you have or how much trauma you have or how much struggle you have. It doesn't care. It doesn't see that at all. It's just there for you when you're ready to touch it, acknowledge it, open to it.
it's not anything you think it is also. We may have these sort of background perceptions that what I'm what I'm talking about or pointing to has a certain quality, spiritual quality or um, maybe a heavy quality or a scary quality or a serious quality or a frivolous quality. It doesn't. It has no qualities. You're free of having to navigate qualities. Is that nice? Because if there's qualities, then you have to take a position and decide whether you like them or not. It's nothing like that. It's just free. No qualities. What is free of qualities? In your experience right now. If it's free of qualities, that means it doesn't exclude qualities. But it's totally free of qualities. It's the qualitylessness in, in anything. But it stands on its own. Easily. So as we touch this, as we acknowledge this at a very deep level, such that we don't even have to think about acknowledging it, at a superficial level as well, it's free of deep and superficial. <clears throat> um, we start to really taste the freedom from extremes. Because this is neither heavy nor light. It's neither serious nor comical. But it can accommodate either. Neither spiritual nor mundane but it can accommodate either and when I say um, this is beyond your personal narratives primary to your personal narratives um that doesn't mean you need to abandon personal narratives either, by the way. That's the funny thing about identity. If you look closely enough, there's nothing there. And when there's nothing there, everything is accommodated. But nothing is required.
and you can see that it has a profound quality of stillness, but that doesn't negate movement at all. So it accommodates movement and stillness. The stillness beyond movement and stillness. It's the silence beyond sound and silence. And that beyond is also right here, very simply. Don't need to find it. I just talk until I run out of words. So this is the way you do this. You just notice everything in your experience until there's nothing left to notice because you're not making a comment about it. You're not taking a position in regard to it. And then the noticing of it becomes seamless with what's noticed. And then you notice there's no noticer. That's freedom from extremes. <laughs>